Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. And before we jump into the really cool stuff that we're going to bring you today, we have a super important message for you. Did you hear that Brilliantly Resilient, the book is out in the world and it landed on the top 100 bestsellers list. That's where it debuted. We're so excited. Go get it at amazon.com. Search Brilliantly Resilient and you'll see it in Kindle and paperback. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. I'm Kristen Smedley here with my partner in crime, Mary Fran Bontempo. And we didn't just bring a guest on for you today. We've got a warrior in the house, or as he says, a reluctant warrior. And we are going to dive into that. Um, This is a, a new friend of ours that has learned a thing or two about some sucker punches that come along um, in your life. And we're going to dive into the reluctant warrior, like I mentioned, and also post-traumatic growth, big words that you're hearing these days. And we're going to learn more about that. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, Kristen and Mary friend, thank you for having me. And uh, I like the way you said a thing or two, and the (laughs) emphasis is on two. We're going to get to that. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. We, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when I was reading your backstory, which we'll, we'll dive into and have you share with our audience. I, when I, when you came into the, well, actually you got to the Zoom room before me because of my technical difficulties, but when I saw you and you still have this, this brightness and this smile, and I, I, I want people to realize that that's, that's why we do what we do is that you come through these tough things and can still smile and make an impact in the world. That's why I'm so excited to dive into your story. And you key phrase there, you're, you're hitting on all the key words, come through. We don't get over what we went through. We get through it. I like when people say, get over it. Yeah, I'm not getting over what happened. I'm going to go through well, it. I, I think you're making a valid point. I mean, anytime someone goes through these things, we, we learn how to process them. We learn how to um, somehow put them into our, our systems so that we can go forward, but it doesn't leave you. And, you know, you and I were, were chatting while Kristen was having technical difficulties. Um, and, you know, my story is that my son was through uh, addiction for many, many years, and, and that's a challenge. And when you're going through it, there seems like there's nothing worse, but your story um, and not that we rate people's challenges. Everything is so personal to the individual, but your family has been through some really tough stuff. So um, tell us about that. Tell us about your story. And then as Kristen said, we'll get into the the growth part of it, but uh, lead us to that point. Sure. And thank you for that intro. Uh, my story was my, my life was really good until it wasn't, you know, it's a classic mm-hmm. <laughs> doing fine. Well, I know going... that song. I... <laughs> yeah, it was doing great song. until it wasn't. Uh, 1983, I was a junior at college and I went uh, not too far from where you are in Philly. I, I went out to West Virginia University out, out West, right below Pittsburgh, uh, WVU, uh, October, uh, my junior year. So pretty much at the midpoint. You know, if you get through your freshman, sophomore, I'm halfway through and uh, eight hours from home because I grew up in New York and uh, the phone rang on a Wednesday 
and it was my younger sister. And I'm one of five kids. There's Sheila, Mark, me in the middle, Janice and Matthew. And Janice was on the phone. And she said, Dennis, you need to come home. I could barely make out what she was saying, but I got that part. And I said, Janice, what's up? She goes, you, you, you don't understand. Mark died in a car accident. Mm. That's what they told me. You mm. all know why I'm here. You looked at the backstory. Mark, my brother, Mark, battled depression for years. And the disease state won. Mark died by suicide. Mm. And awful. I wouldn't wish on the devil himself. And, but I had to go back home. And this is where the story gets a little funky. If I could change, you know, I could change a lot of things in my life. But this is one thing we did. I went home Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was back at school Tuesday. Oh, God. Wow. Took little or no time. Went, buried Mark. And I, you know, to tell you the truth, I just split. I was like, I'm out of here because this is ground zero for this amazing trauma that our family had. And uh, I, I wanted out of there. So I got out of there. I went back to school. That wasn't very good because I wasn't doing well. I drank a lot. Uh, other stuff. We'll leave it at that. Hmm. Um, just wasn't in a good position. I was 20 years old. Just lost my older brother to suicide. And I was lost. And uh, I don't know how I did it. You know, maybe it's the resilient part, but I got out of school in four years and eight weeks. I took a summer session and I graduated. And then, uh, you know, I continued to amaze myself. I got a really good job and I was living in Pennsylvania, uh, working for Merck, living in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Merck Pharmaceuticals, a wonderful company. And um, 11 years later, the phone rings again. Now, remember the Gillen Five? It's Sheila, Mark, now in heaven, me. Janice and Matthew. Mm -hmm. If I was struggling, so was everybody else. Mm. And I never really looked behind me. And Matthew was having a rough time. And one night, um, 11 years after we lost Mark, uh, in a drunken stupor with access to lethal means, Matt followed Mark and mm. he died by suicide. So that's two. You know, we have, we have 45,000 in America right now. I know these numbers from around my desk are everywhere. It's what I do now. Uh, I live and breathe suicide prevention. But yeah, two, you know, you all know this. This is something we say in the, in the brilliant, brilliantly resilient world. We never say it can't get any worse because it can. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely can. Absolutely. And then, um, so. Oh my gosh. I, you know, I clearly this is nothing to do with me, but when you just, even the words feel like a punch in the gut, you know, I, I, and I can't even begin to imagine how you process something like that, but it sounds like at the beginning, you didn't really process it. You just pushed your way through it. You left the site of the trauma. You, you went back to school. And I think that's a really common response for most of us, because when we're faced with something that overwhelming, we can't process it. But you're, you're into the whole mental health part of this. Is that a healthy response? And what could, should you do when something like that happens? How do you begin to wrap your head around it? And what steps do you take to ensure your own mental health? Yeah, I think the first thing I did when I went back to school was, you know, uh, I'm a mental health advocate. I was an accounting major in school. And, you know, all my life now, I just I, I focused on teaching myself some of this stuff. I think anyone 
with a degree and I, you know, a therapist would look at that and go, that's avoidance. You know, I was avoiding it. I was from the mm-hmm. ostrich with the head in the sand. You know, I was running away. And um, as we all know, that's not a really good way to handle a trauma because if you swallow your problems, your stomach will keep score and it'll come back. It'll come out in unhealthy ways. I wasn't dealing with it in a healthy way. So it was coming out in unhealthy ways. I mean, the drinking was ramped up. Uh, the other stuff, there's drugs, there's alcohol, it's uh, this numbing, what was this pain? Mm-hmm. And then um, it wasn't healthy. It was a, what we call those negative coping mechanisms, totally negative coping mechanisms. Yeah. I know I years ago, a therapist had said to me, Kristen, you're a stuffer. <laughs> Stuff it all in there and then like blow up the one day or it comes out somewhere else. And so here's, here's what I would love to dive into a little bit. Maybe you can walk us through this, Dennis. You know, there's two schools. I just went through a, I'm still kind of in the muck of this. I know all divorces are horrific. Mine has multiple layers that make it more horrific. Um, and for my kids, I have three kids. Um, you know, people say you should use your time when you're going through something like dive into a project so you can use that energy and take your mind off of what you're going through, you know, or, or sit and feel the, the pain of things, go ahead and feel it. Where do you find the balance in, in trying to channel your, your energy somewhere and feeling stuff, but not getting overwhelmed with it? Is there a balance or does it go back and forth? I would say that's an individual approach. It's a, it's what's do what's right for you, but it's really tough to dive into something when you got this, traumatic event and one of the things for me personally when I, I lose right off the bat and Kristen good luck in your divorce I went through one of those it felt like a death it did mm-hmm. you know Mark, Matt Mark and the divorce were like three traumas I, I could do without um, when I dive back into something with this trauma behind me like tapping me on the shoulder I can't concentrate mm-hmm. <laughs> it's unbelievable everything you know I try I know some people who could hyper-focus, God bless them. I will run into, in the suicide prevention business, I'll run into someone who's doing unbelievable work and I'll say to them, when did you lose your loved one? They're like, oh, you know, four months ago. I'm like, what are you, <laughs> I couldn't even, my head was so far at my rear end for, you know, right when yeah. Matt died, it was like, it was awful. You know, it took me, personally, took me 16 years to speak about my brothers in public. Mm. 16 years. I went into my man cave and I was fine there. And then some other beautiful things started happening. I had a family, I had two boys. So some really healthy diversions um, yeah. and, and that helped, but it was, it was man cave central right there. It was just, I'm not talking about this. You know, it's I, really I, interesting I, that you say that because um, I can talk about my son's experience and say, you know, this happened, that happened, this happened. But when I start to talk to people, and Kristen can attest to this, about the emotional side of that, mm-hmm. I go right back there. Like, I'm right back there in a, in a second. And, you know, I, the tears, it's, it's just, so do we compartmentalize? And I think, first of all, you said people have an individual process, and I think it's really important for everybody to understand that, that it's not the same for everyone, but are there certain pieces that we should work through and, and does compartmentalizing your grief, at least occasionally to allow you to function, is that a helpful thing to do? It's 
speaking from my own personal experience, it is helpful at times. You got to put it aside. Like, man, I got to do stuff. I, you know, when the two knuckleheads showed up, and that's my kids, Martin, you know, Martin and Brennan. I can't be sitting there grieving, you know, crying on the couch for something that happened. Like, I, someone needs a diaper change. You know, this is this is going on. Someone's throwing up in the corner. Get on it. Um, but also let. Let the days happen. And you know this from doing all the seminars you do. Let the grief do its work too. Mm-hmm. Don't avoid it all the time. There'll be days oh, like, you know yeah. what? Let it, let it hit. Let's go. We're going to have a cry. Let's have a cry. Let it rip. I appreciate uh, that so much. I think a lot of people listening appreciate that too. Because I feel like so much stuff out there now says, here's how you get over it. Here's how you go through it. Here's how you take a step. Here's how you do this. And there are days, like we have a, um, a, a brilliant, a bit of brilliance that Mary Fran drops all the time is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? And I've learned to say to myself, I, Oh God, I'm here again. Like I have my two sons that are blind when I'll never forget diagnosis day, you know, and I did cry on my couch for too long. And there's transitions now where like my second one went off to college and I was sitting last week in a pit of, Oh gosh, he's not as socially, um, you know, savvy as his older brother. Is he doing okay? But I let myself sit and feel it for a little bit to visit and then remind myself of all the steps we've taken and all the stuff that I've done for him and all the stuff that he is doing that is in the right direction and and then work my way out of it. And I never say the words, maybe you can agree with this or not. I never say snap out of it anymore. I climb out of it. I step out of it. I hold someone's hand out of it, but I don't snap out of it anymore. No, I don't think there's any snapping. No snapping going on. None of this. It's you, you crawl out of it some days. You uh, mm. some days you stay in there for a while until you figure out a way out of it. Yeah, snap out of it. Turn that frown upside down. Get over it. You could blow all those out your rear end. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I, I, I really don't want to hear it. No. In fact, I do. When I said I want the grief to do its work, what happens to all of us on this podcast and your listeners when that happens? You you end up, believe it or not you become a better person. If it does its proper work, you're more empathetic. You're more compassionate. You feel mm-hmm. everything. I told you about the drinking when Mark went down and then all that stuff. When Matthew died, I stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last night I got hammered was the night of his funeral. I'm coming up on 10,000 days sober, December 5th, which is uh-huh. kind of funny if you think about it. How do we sell booze? We sell it in fifths. <laughs> 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 I see, I see what you did there, God. Ha ha. Funny, funny. I got you. Good dad joke. I got it. sense of humor for sure. Absolutely. So 10,000 days sober. That was one of the best things I ever did. The second best thing I ever did is I went and saw a professional therapist through, you know, the good folks at Merck. We had an employee assistance program at the time. I went and saw a therapist. And those two, those two pillars are what I stand on today. The sobriety piece and the mental health professional bringing them in to the equation, help me uh, do what I do now. So that's one of the things that we talk about all the time too, raising your hand and asking for help and, and bringing in an expert, you know, especially in these things that let's face it, no one is equipped to manage this. No one, you don't, you don't come with that piece that goes, well, when somebody close to me kills themselves, then I'll be able to, nobody comes with that. So that idea of, of, you know, seeking out expert help. But here's what I love about what you've done. I don't think you could call yourself, maybe you do, a therapist. I don't know if you have those degrees or whatever, but you've taken, and and Kristen and I always say we are doctors of nothing. 
Your doctors of nothing. Proudly proclaimed. Add me to that list, doctor of nada. But but you know what? When you have the personal experience, you can add a layer to people's healings because when they talk to someone who's gone through something similar or who has that experience, you know, there's an unfortunate but immediate kinship there. So you started a foundation called Half a Sorrow, and and I want to get into that. I want to get into you know, where that came from, which is partially obvious, but what your goal was and how you help people through this. Sure. And where the name came from, the Half Asara Foundation was a Swedish proverb. I was driving around in my car and somebody said this on the radio and I probably heard it a million times before, but it just hit me on this one particular day. It's a Swedish proverb that goes like this. A shared joy is a double joy. A shared Mm -hmm. sorrow is half a sorrow. Oh, Wow. Oh, like, wow. wow. That's I basically had to pull the car over. Like, you know, this thing's been around forever and I just heard it now. Um, wow. But that's what we all do. And in the, in the resilient field is, you know, when we start sharing our sorrow, we cut it in half. They say, half. Let's, let's go with the proverb half, half, half. Will it, will we ever get to zero? The answer is no. Mm. And that's okay. I'll always have a piece of Mark and Matthew with me. That's the new normal. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. So that that became our foundation name. And it was kind of cool because I crowdsourced it at first. I put on Facebook, what should we name this thing? And someone said, don't name it after your brothers. Mm. Yeah, I'm like, all right. I was thinking about naming it after my brothers. And then this thing hit me because I, I speak about it in my talk. And for some reason, that slide people would start writing it down. I could see their heads. Like, I'm oh, not boy. doing the same thing. That <laughs> hit me like I, nothing has hit me in a while. Mm. And it, it just resonated. So the Half Asara Foundation, and the reason we started the foundation was I speak publicly about suicide prevention, and I'm very upfront right off the bat. I'm not a therapist, not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, and often have those people in the room so I can point to them and say, go there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, had a, I got a call from this kid in Texas one time, and we couldn't make it work. You know, I'm not going to get rich doing this. I, that's fine. I just want to go out and do what I got to do. And I never said no before to a, a gig. Someone said, hey, can you come here? Yeah, we'll figure it out. You know, pay my gas. You know, we'll figure mm-hmm. this thing out. This was in Texas. It was a flight, a hotel, rental car. And by the end of the day, we couldn't make it work. And I hung up the phone. And I remember saying, I never said no before. I never said no to a gig. You know, someone said, hey, we're having this situation. Can you come? And then, yeah, what time? What do I wear? The foundation allows me to do that now. I literally, uh, if that kid ever calls back, I said, dude, what time, what do I wear? Let's go. So that's why we created that foundation. And it's been really exciting. It's a 501c3. I know nothing about running a nonprofit, but now I'm the executive director of this nonprofit mm-hmm. and learning every day and learning how you know people are generous with their time and money and they want to help. Wow. Wow. You're, um, you're touching my heart in so many ways because uh, it was actually years ago. I don't know if you know um, John Lee Dumas of the EO Fire um, podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. He had said to me years ago um, when I was building my whole nonprofit and whatnot in my in my thriving blind and working with blind parents. I said, "Oh, I'm getting so many calls. I have to I have to have someone else take these calls and and then I can focus on building the business." And he was like, "Never stop talking." to those moms that are in the pit that you were in, never stop. And, and what you're saying about the 501c3, we're now it's becoming a 501c3, like official. And I'm like, oh my God, the paper 
(laughs) (laughs) But I had to say no to, to a group in Dallas, in Texas, because I can't financially do that, but the foundation will allow it. Like, it's just interesting that you're, you're saying exactly what I needed to hear that when the work is important and you have a purpose, like you still have to feed your family and you still have to do your thing. Um, but it, a, a way comes for you to be able to be out there serving. It, it, it's so true. And think about all three of us here on this. Our misery has become our mission. I was trying to explain to somebody what I do. And I do this, this, this. And she stopped me. And she goes, oh, so your misery became your mission. I'm like, yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> she Where's the it, t-shirt like, guy? Make the t-shirt. <laughs> 15 seconds. I was going on for 15 minutes. She goes, oh. And then the important part of that, what I'm learning about being an executive director is no money, no mission. Mm-hmm. And that I, that's the business side. I'd never try to get into that, but you have to, you have yeah. to address it. No money, no mission. So with, you know, our website, halfasara.org, if you want to donate, you can, we love it. Um, but I'm, I'm not a good salesman that way. I'm like, not good at asking for money, but people are generous. Their hearts are generous. It's unbelievable. Uh, if you touch them, uh, people want to help. They just don't know how. Yeah, you're actually talking about, you're highlighting one of the biggest, um, one of my most favorite that <laughs> Mary Fran, this piece of the brilliant and resilient process, Mary Fran drug me to it, kicking and screaming is the core values, what your core values are. And you just hit on it as a person and as a business or nonprofit, um, when you know those values of service and who you're going to serve and what your mission is, then you find a way and you and you work within the uncomfortable to make it so that the work can still happen. And you got dragged into it. You know, some people show up, they run into it. Some people are dragging it, but you're in it. You're in the arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, we earlier were talking about, you know, being a warrior, a reluctant warrior. I said that I was a reluctant warrior. I didn't want to talk about this. Then I started talking about it. And then someone said, you got to keep talking about it. A reluctant warrior is still a warrior. You know, once, once you're in there, you're in there. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe someone had to push you in there. But once you enter that arena, ta-da, let's go. Game on. So the game is on for all three of us. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, um, <laughs> this happens often that I'll get a call from somebody and a mom, a family, you know, who's having a, an issue with a kid or whatever. And you talk through it and you talk through it and you talk through it. And after the, the call's over, I'm like, oh my God, that was exhausting. But you know what? You never don't pick up the phone because as mm. you said, the misery is the mission. And I, I think out of all three of us, we don't want anybody to feel the way we felt. We didn't have the resources. So when you can become the resource, that's that's the saving piece of this. Like when when you can take that and go, okay, I can help somebody else. So to that end, what do you say to people? When you get out there, when you're asked to speak, what in the world do you say? Where do you even begin? Well, I start, it's, it's funny because I do have a TEDx talk like you two do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ted party. Ted party. <laughs> uh, it was interesting. During my TEDx talk, I left my brothers to the end and it was killing me on stage because I was up there talking, knowing where this was going. And I wanted to like not surprise the audience, just say, hey, boom. You know, I started out the TEDx talk saying, I know these two guys that died alone. And at the end was the big reveal. They were my brothers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm tearing up thinking about it. When I speak live, I, I get them out of the way right off the bat. Boom, 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 boom. You know, Matt and Mark, this happened because I have to go into learning. So we start talking about warning signs. We start talking about risk factors. We talk about stories. The sobriety comes into it. And it's these funny, believe it or not, my talk is somewhat funny at times. 
mostly aimed at me. I'm never flipping towards the disease state or anyone with a mental health issue because been there, done that, you know, never very respectful. But I had a woman come up to me one time. She goes, you owe me money for mascara because I was laughing and crying at the same time because mm-hmm. it's life. That's life. It just goes up and down, up and down and, you know, strap yourself in. You're on the roller coaster. I like to say in my talk, it's not all Skittles and unicorns. It isn't. Uh, but yeah. we, we do, we do touch on the stuff. And then it's funny because you probably do this in your seminars. You bring it to the edge and then you pull back, you know, that's not go over. But this is, this is serious. Oh, that's the whole point. We were on the other side of that edge. We don't want to, don't want no. to go there. I want you to see it. I want you to look over and see, that's not good. That's the pit we want to avoid, but come back with me. So when I speak at colleges and I miss that because of Corona, I usually hire a kid to be my DJ and I have a DJ and all this stuff. It's hilarious. It's, it's not like, I have really bad ADHD and I'm like, what would I do if I was sitting in that audience? You know, who wants to come to a suicide prevention talk? Nobody. So <laughs> often they're forced, you know, when I spoke at Cornell university, a thousand kids showed up because they had to be there, you know? So yeah. we address that elephant in the room, but they walk in, they see a DJ and they go, am I in the right room? Like, is this the suicide prevention? And there's a guy spinning tunes up there. Like, yeah, you're in the right room, sit down. So it's, I kind of tailored this thing and it took, a lot of work because the first couple, and you know this from the first couple of seminars you all did, mm-hmm. first couple of talks I did sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I owe those people an apology. <laughs> they introduced me one time. They introduced me as this guy that lost two brothers to suicide. Thank God it was a small room. They said, this guy lost two brothers to suicide. And I'm sitting there and I had an out-of-body experience. I'm going, oh, that poor guy. And then they go, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Gillen. I'm like, crap it's me. me the poor guy the poor guy oh that guy he got dealt a bad hand ladies and gentlemen our speaker dennis gill i'm like eh. and yeah, i just start crying you feel, that, you feel that weight all of a sudden but you know what you really make a valid point we, we talked earlier about compartmentalizing your your grief and compartmentalizing just so you can get through sometimes however um you you can't compartmentalize life every day. So the idea that there is, is humor to be found, even in the, the worst of experiences, it allows people to, it it almost gives people permission to feel what they're feeling at the time, regardless of what it is. And I think that's so important just, you know, in general, but, but probably in suicide prevention too, people have to, we have to validate that people feel what they feel. Absolutely. And I don't think they're ready for the humor, but what happened over time, I was given a very dry presentation. It was awful. Death by PowerPoint, blah, 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 blah. We've all been there. You've seen it. Like they read the slide. I was that guy doing stats, 45,000, you know, 79% are men. And everybody was yawning. So I was, uh, I had to do one at Shaw Air Force Base in Sumter, South Carolina. And they scheduled me six times during the day. So it was my same presentation six times, somewhere in the middle my ADHD kicks in, I'm bored with my own presentation and I go off on a rant. I just went off on a rant and I look up and they're laughing and I'm sitting there going, all right, maybe we need to do more of that. Because when you laughter and you know this doing your stuff, disarms the audience, just mm-hmm. the walls that are built up comes down with laughter. And now we have access to the heart. So okay. let's go for the heart. Yeah. yeah, they remember. They remember. <laughs> That's what we do our biggest, uh, our most popular keynote that we do. I mean, we go into to our story. We just we just hit them 
right in the beginning with our stories. And then we're like, aren't we the most fun presentation? So then we go on the, on the roller coaster climb up to the funniest of fun. And then people can't believe that they're screaming and laughing at the end. Then we're like, oh, and by the way, like our kids are doing these things now, like it worked out, but, but we just like get it right out of the way in the beginning. Like, just like you said, like, it was like, okay, let's just get that out of the way. Now let's see how you can. I'm like, and then we'll go like your life can't possibly be as bad as some of these things if you think it's bad you know but people have they really respond to 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 that funny part and the oh you've been there too you've been in this pit the pit yeah the pit of despair from what was that the princess bride the pit of despair mm-hmm. we've all been there now you've done your seminars and your live speaking have you ever come off the stage when you're vulnerable, people want to come up to you. So they'll, they'll stick around. So often when I speak, I block off like an hour, two hours afterwards, because I'm not going anywhere. I'm not running out of there. And then someone will tell you a story and you're sitting there going, Oh my God, how are you still standing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to get into trauma Olympics. Like, Oh, mine's bad. Yeah. No, your mind's bad. I go, they're all bad. Yeah. Um, but every now and then someone comes up like, Whoa. And then I remember this one kid came up and said, next time you're coming up on stage with me, because that story is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think at the end of all of this, um, this is about, again, recognizing people wherever they are and having the conversation. And I think that's one of the things that is your goals, you know, of your goals to have this conversation about mental health and you know, by facilitating that through your own story and allowing people to come up to you, you know, this is stuff that we don't like to talk about. That is the goal to improve mental health by promoting real conversations with the emphasis on real. How you doing? Fine. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. No, 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 no. I know fine when I hear fine. That was not a good fine. Not fine. <laughs> I'll tell you what, speaking of that, I mean, just bringing that down to a practical level, my, my middle son, that's a freshman in college, when we were driving back for one of his breaks that he was on, we got into a conversation about another friend of mine is going through a divorce. And I was talking about, you know, the kids and what are some things that he's learned through it. And we got into the conversation about in the very beginning, when it was really, his dad kind of went off the rails and he bore the brunt of it. And he always said that whole year, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good. And he would, and he would do the smiling and laughing, but I knew that things just weren't right. Especially when I found out everything he was really going through. And he said to me in the car ride this time around, he goes, mom, I was a mess that year, but I felt bad. You were already going through so much stuff. I didn't want to add to that. Right. And luckily a friend of mine that's in education said, Kristen, there are resources in the school and here's one big one that every school has. And I reached out to the school to, to watch all of my kids and step in and just see if they were, you know, needing some support, which, which Mitchell actually was, um, and had some family come around and just really hone in on, on my kids. But he, he just didn't want me struggling too. You keep saying he, so I'm going to assume it's a boy. Yeah. Boys are the worst men. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'm going with this. Statistically speaking, men are horrible at this 79%. Of all completed suicides are guys, 79% all completed suicides. Women have more attempts, so you're not off the hook, ladies. You're not off the hook. When it comes to completions, it's dudes, so four out of five, roughly. And wow. probably the, it, it, it's awful. It's pride. It's a pride issue. Um, and pride kills in this scenario. So that's why we're trying to get uh, tomorrow night. I'm doing a men's night at our local tennis center. 
And what we do before we get on the court, we've done it one time already. Uh, we had three courts. Now, this night, we need five courts because guys are coming out. And all I do is I do a little talk before we play tennis. I say, guys, this is why we're doing this. Men need men. Uh, we need each mm. other. We're wired for connection. Women need women and, and vice versa, everything else. That's why we connect. Uh, I give them a little pep talk, and then I send them out there to go play tennis with total strangers. They don't know who the other guys are. So we're trying to get people to just interact again post-COVID, which is a little tough, but we're doing it. So it, the thing that strikes me about this is, particularly with men, but with all of us, as, as Mitch did, we, we push down our worst feelings because we don't want to burden people. So if you are someone who is close to someone and you suspect that they might be going through a challenging time, but they won't open up to you, what can you do? I mean, do you, do you refer them to an agency? Like what, you know, somebody's struggling, but they're just not sharing. What do you do? It's a, like a peel the onion kind of thing is, you know, one program came out last year. I thought it was brilliant. It was called, how are you really? By adding that one word, like it changed the whole question. How are you? Comma, really take that pause. And, uh, that's why I think the, the connections we make I'll give you a story about this. You know, I just spoke to a guy last night who was with my older brother the day before he died. And he said, everything looked happy, everything else. Mark on the day he died, he went to visit a friend and didn't get out of the car. He pulled in the driveway. She went to open up the door for him and he backed out. This is the days before cell phones and he took off. We only lived about a mile or two away. So she thought he forgot something. Mm. That was the day. So, Mary Friend, you bring up a good uh, scenario here to bring this in. If Mark would have raised his hand at that moment, if he gets out of the car and says to this woman, I'm not doing so hot, everything changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything changes. And I was thinking about this recently. I had to sit, and I'm a survivor of suicide loss. And someone who's gone in that dark place and, and attempted, and they lived, thank goodness, they have someone, that's called someone with lived experience. So I'm at a survivor suicide loss meeting and I'm sitting between this woman and the box of tissues. She starts talking about her son who died by suicide and it was somewhat raw and I'm handing her tissues and I'm sitting there going, there's no way this son knew what, the, what this did to mom. There's no way if that son was sitting in my seat, handing his mom tissues, mm. he never would have did it. Yeah. He never would have did it, but they just can't see at that moment. So if, if, if someone out there is listening, you're not doing so hot, and we're trying to peel back that onion. If someone asks you how you're doing, say, you know, be honest, you know, I'm not doing so hot, or I'm struggling. Just say that, I'm struggling. We all are in some way, shape, or form. You know, either you're struggling, you know, well, or you're not struggling well, uh, but we're struggling. You know, we're all trying to get through this thing called life without looking stupid. And some days well, that ship not- sailed. That ship sailed a lot. I always say that to people. Are you worried that you're going to look stupid? Guess what? You already have. Let's let's put that. Let's in. go. You already you already look stupid. I'm you guaranteeing that. You yeah. can't spell stupid without you in it. Let's go. <laughs> oh, great. Ashley's going to use that one. It's quite the warm, fuzzy one of the duo here. <laughs> oh yeah, right at you. Boom. Yeah. That ain't me. That ain't me. Um, so then, I guess uh, conversely, for those of us who see others suffering, do not give up on them. And if you are really concerned, keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. Be persistent. That's all I'd say. Yeah, I would also add in there if it's parents. I know from my own experience with, and my three kids are extremely different. God help me, they are all different. 
I did have, and we, to this day, there are friends, teachers, coaches that have kind of been um, designated, approached, invited to hang out here and there and check in with my kids. You know, my one is, is a senior in college. He'll go for, for drinks with, with a couple of the designated friends, you know, and they just check in. Cause there's a lot of times they don't want to tell me things, but they'll tell somebody else mm-hmm. something. So that was one of the things that going through anyone go out there going through divorce or other challenges. That was one of the things that I actually got right in this mess that has been for four years that um, really was helpful. Well, God bless in that four years. I went through a divorce. Can I tell you a happy story? Yeah, I'll give you a happy story. God is good. I was, um, I moved to Greenville, South Carolina after my divorce, changed towns. You know, I was going to change my people, place and things. My boys were up here. I wasn't running away. They were at, one was at Furman university. One was at Clemson. They were close by. So I'm Hmm. going where my boys are. So I come up here and, um, one day I'm walking out of church and the light changed, which means I had to change my direction. I want to keep walking. So it's basically like a rectangle, two corners. I can go this way, this way, or this way, or this way, you know, either way, it doesn't matter. Six, one way, half dozen, the other. So I made a left and I started walking down the street and I had it here in South Carolina. There's like really two football teams, Clemson and USC. And I had a USC sweatshirt in my hand and this woman who was walking in front of me. And I just said, on your right, because I was going to pass her. Uh, she says, oh, you don't see too many of those up here. And it was the USC sweatshirt because we live in an area that's close to Clemson. That's orange and, you know, Garnett. They have different colors, whatever rivalries. I'm not, I don't, I just like the sweatshirt. I don't have any skin <laughs> in that game just to keep me warm. People calm down with your football rivalries. She goes, oh, I went there and we just started talking. And I'm like, man, halfway we're walking together and she's really smoking hot. I'm like, am I hitting on some guy's wife? Cause I'm, you know. And finally, she says this magic word. She goes, well, after my divorce, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so you know, to be resilient, I was like, all right, cool. This is good. This is happening. And it was a year. They always say, Kristen, take it, take a year off. Like, so it was a year and a day after my divorce was final, after the court date. It was a year and one day and I met this woman and we are now married and living in Greenville, South Carolina. And she's awesome. Wow. So it was the, it was the USC sweatshirt you had in your hand. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, go get a USC sweatshirt and cross the street in South Carolina. (laughs) Here's the killer line. Cause you know, I have a way with the ladies just say on your right, on your right. I was passing her like trail etiquette, like on your right. If I had a little bell, I would have rang. The way, slow poke. She was kind of like meandering. I'm from the Northeast. I'm like, I got my pace going. And she's like, la, 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 just walking down the street. I'm like, lady, you got to make a choice here. Left or right. <laughs> it's hilarious. don't get us down there. They just don't get us. Move, move. move. Let's go. Let's go. And then um, she said something. I turned and I like looked at her. And then I also I forgot where I was going. So don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, my God. It's been such a brilliant and and actually delightful as well as informative conversation. So thank you so much. And please tell everybody where they can find you and Half a Sorrow Foundation because we want everybody to have access to you as a resource. Yeah, go to halfasorrow.org. My, my website used to be dennisgillen.com and it's not about me. You know, this, this mission's bigger. This, you know, like I'm going to be this all-inspiring guy. The foundation's where my heart is. Half a Sorrow dot org and you can see anything there we're going to put safety plans on there for suicide prevention we're still rebuilding it so dennisgillen.com is an awesome site we're going to transfer a lot of that over 
uh, and that's where we that's where we're heading with this thing so awesome halfasaro.org everybody and listen i know that we oh my gosh dennis we've had the the most fun and like uh, mary fran said and informative time here with you today but for all of those that are wondering how am i ever going to get to the point where i can laugh about this also go to brilliantlyresilient.net and and check out the resources that we have there for you to reset rise and reveal your brilliance wherever you are in that continuum and keep on listening to this show and you'll get all kinds of tools and strategies so until next time we'll see y'all thanks for tuning in to the brilliantly resilient podcast join our facebook group and follow us on youtube to be inspired with tools to reset rise and reveal your brilliance